And you're listening to Louisiana Considered here on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. On the show today, a documentary, Hollow Tree, follows three Louisiana teenagers as they navigate the impact of climate change. But first, 150 years ago this month, Pickney Benton Stewart Pinchback, otherwise known as PBS Pinchback, became governor of Louisiana. He was the first African-American to become governor of any U.S. state and is largely remembered for his role in the Reconstruction era. For more on PBS Pinchback, his life and legacy, Louisiana Considered's managing producer, Alana Schreiber, spoke with Joseph Dawson, professor emeritus of history at Texas A&M University. He is the editor of the book, The Louisiana Governors, from Iberville to Edwards. What can you tell us about PBS Pinchback's early life? I understand he was born in 1837 to a formerly enslaved mother and her former master. He spent his early life raised in a mixed-race family in Mississippi. What do we know about that? He was born in Georgia when his father and mother were traveling across the South to returning uh, to Mississippi. And so he was one of many, I don't have any estimate on the number, of mixed-race individuals who grew up with, with the planter's family or recognized as offspring of the owner of the plantation. Um, so this was in Mississippi, uh, even though he was born in Georgia, and he had a very comfortable life. Uh, evidently, his father took a high regard in his son. Pinchback did serve in the Civil War. He actually fought with the Union's first all-Black Louisiana Native Guards Regiment. What do you know about his military career and perhaps how that inspired him to go into politics? It was very important and gave him a remarkable credibility to have been a Union soldier. In fact, he was a captain in that volunteer regiment. He served with two different regiments, um, the first one was called the uh, First Louisiana Volunteer Infantry, and he served with that regiment for about a year. A regiment varied in the numbers of its soldiers, up to a thousand or so. After serving as a captain for one year, he then stepped away from that unit and raised a second one. That's the one you mentioned, uh, the Louisiana Native Guards. Um, but there were some administrative and I think probably discrimination uh, difficulties involved uh, and that unit did not uh, have Pinchback as its actual commander. Um, so he served for about a year in one uh, Union regiment. And I understand that when Pinchback was first elected to the state Senate in 1868, pretty much half of the seats in that Congress were comprised of African-Americans. This was just years after the Civil War, so how did that happen? Well, this was a time of great turmoil. First of all, it's important to emphasize that, how, what, how dislocated so much of American society, uh, in the South at least, the former Confederate states. So black men could vote, and those were the primary votes that elected him to the legislature and to the Constitutional Convention. Um, the status had changed so drastically as a result of the Civil War in all of the former Confederate states. So it was this changed uh, status and therefore benefit to black politicians across the former Confederacy 
uh, that black men could hold a variety of different offices, but particularly in state government. We are speaking with Joseph Dawson, Professor Emeritus of History at Texas A&M University and editor of the book The Louisiana Governors, From Iberville to Edwards. Well, PBS Pinchback was the first African-American to be elected lieutenant governor and governor of a U.S. state by the legislature, how was he able to garner support from white voters, some of whom were probably fighting for the Confederacy just a few years earlier? The sequence was more directly involved with the legislature, just as you indicated, um, so that when Lieutenant Governor Oscar Dunn died in office, rather than having a brand new election by the voters, the legislature was called upon to choose a new lieutenant governor. So Pinchback moved um, at the uh, direction of the legislature from being a state senator to being the lieutenant governor. So your question is a good one, though, about even elections in state elections in general, not only Louisiana, but across the South, because many of the voters uh, were former Confederate soldiers. And here's this unusual combination Often it varied drastically from county to county, and Louisiana, of course, has to be different, so it's parishes instead of counties, um, so that some counties uh, around New Orleans, for example, were very strong for the Republican Party, and other counties in North Louisiana, for example, uh, had very weak Republican parties initially. So there, it was that combination of newly enabled black voters and, and some former Confederate soldiers who decided the society and the politics had changed and they would vote for Republicans. But also there were a number of uh, supporters from the Union who returned to Louisiana to their homes in the state, uh, as well as some others moving to Louisiana who were not initially from the state, but took up residence there and then became eligible to vote. These would be white individuals, white men moving into the state. Pinchback became governor in 1878, serving for just about a year. What did he accomplish during that time? He served actually less than a year. Nevertheless, his time in office was notable, uh, first and foremost by the recognition of his capability. The legislature continued to work uh, to pass standard laws. I think it was about a dozen or so that were passed in a fairly just a few weeks that Pinchback was acting governor, um, and he signed those bills from the legislature into law. So it's that political process, that legal process, and his remarkable situation as the first black governor of any state under any circumstances uh, that I think Pinchback is deservedly uh, recognized for today. You know, one thing that I learned earlier this year is that there was actually a black baseball team in New Orleans called the New Orleans Pinchbacks that started in the 1880s, of course, named after PBS Pinchbacks. And I don't really think it was because he was a big fan of baseball. I mean, maybe he was, but I think the the recognition was more about his contributions to the black community, especially because at that time, black baseball was a really big economic opportunity for the black community. Mm-hmm actually at a certain time was the third biggest moneymaker for black businessmen in the country. So I'm wondering, how did PBS Pinchback help economically advance and 
provide a sort of economic independence for the black community in which he served? That's another really worthwhile question, and you are some steps ahead of me there. Um, <laughs> I think that this matter of a team being called the Pinchbacks is in itself remarkable. Uh, baseball was phenomenally popular in America in the mid-19th century and, and just continued to grow in popularity after uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction periods, so that uh, it's a time for social interaction uh, among the members of the um, of the state, but especially uh, blacks. And uh, investors in these teams, no doubt, were able to see it as a money-making operation. And it's back to this matter of official recognition, his status. He was well-educated. I passed over that in his early years. He had gone, had formal schooling. Uh, he had also lived uh, for several years in Ohio. Um, he had worked uh, on the Mississippi River steamboats uh, as a steward, uh, uh, as a free black. So he had a background that gave him um, certain elements of status in the black community. While Pinchback was the first black governor to serve in a U.S. state, he's also Louisiana's last black governor. Why do you think it is that our state's most recent black governor served 150 years ago? That's also another worthwhile aspect of understanding Reconstruction and how strained th things were and how many believed uh, it was to only be a temporary status. Um, other blacks served in legislatures. The South Carolina legislature had more than half the members in the state Senate and state uh, House of Representatives were black. Um, members of the U.S. Congress and the House of Representatives were black. Uh, there were multiple black senators during Reconstruction. So here again, holding these positions officially uh, was very important for a, an element of transition in American uh, society, American political and social life. This has been Joseph Dawson, Professor Emeritus of History at Texas A&M University and editor of the book, The Louisiana Governors from Iberville to Edwards. Thanks for being here. I'm glad to help out and uh, I, I, you had a bunch of good questions. Thank you. This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Patrick Madden. Sinking land, flooding, hurricanes, climate change, wrapping your head around these big environmental issues is hard. A documentary film, Hollow Tree, follows three Louisiana teenagers trying to do just that. The coastal desk, Hallie Parker, spoke with the documentary's young stars, Mackenzie Fongi, Annabelle Pavi, Tanyelma da Costa, as well as Hollow Tree's director and filmmaker, Kira Ackerman. So how did you all come together to make this film? I guess just to lay a little bit of groundwork. The film conceives of filmmaking as a classroom where everybody is learning together. Um, myself, producers Monique Walton and Chachi Hauser, um, Tanyelma, Annabelle, Kenzie, and all of the other people in our community who we interact with. And part of the learning is is us just learning from each other and having different life experiences based on our geography and identity. And so I, I chose 
to work with Annabelle, Kenzie, and Tanyama because they all live in very different places in the state. And those places are experiencing climate change in very different ways. Right. So Tanyama is from Baton Rouge, Mackenzie or Kinsey is from Homa, and Annabelle is from Lafayette. And when you watch the film, it feels like you're not only following each of your individual journeys, but also how they're interconnected. When did you all meet? Um, the first time we met, I remember, was, well, was the film, but it was when we first looked at the, it was the day that we first looked at the Mississippi River map. And I mean, we also met at the Mississippi Levy. <laughs> at the levee and, and the bridge. But I, I distinctly remember that was the first day we looked at the map and looked at the different routes that it had before. And we started just having questions and talking about it. And that happens throughout Hollow Tree, right, Tanyama? You three are learning along with the viewer about the big problems facing South Louisiana, where you all have grown up. So what was it like going through this journey together? So this experience was very eye-opening to me. And it was a lot of, I don't know, like I, I knew things were happening around us, but to actually go to different spots and make connections within, you know, within like ourselves and then with Tanyama and Annabelle, it's like us all coming together. It really like widened, well, widened my view on a lot of things for sure, because we all have very different viewpoints on things so like what things that Annabelle thought about and things that Tayama thought about like never crossed my mind I'm like wow like y'all really like brought more like sight to something that wasn't really seen on my end yeah um for me as well I've had so much fun I've gotten to see so many things that I, I don't think I'd ever have any um any opportunity to see and it was really good that we had each other throughout the whole process to kind of bounce off of each other all the time um, and like how our questions would develop when like each of us um, reflected on what we were facing. I think that was pivotal to everything really. And um, we've definitely got out much more out of the experience because of the fact that it was like this constant like back and forth and just like the way that like our, our, our ideas were able to like um, just de develop um, and I mean mind-blowing things you know like I'm like why was I never taught this why I live here why don't I know this like no one's talking about this yeah and we watch you three visit sites across South Louisiana to really start learning about the state's past in order to better understand how we got here you speak to the Army Corps about the history of levees on the river, visit LSU's giant river model, and talk with your family. What sites and conversations really stood out to you? Two of the most influential kind of explorations that we did while filming, one of them was at the Whitney Plantation, which is, it's like one of the oldest, it's a plantation that displays the life of an enslaved person and it's also a long river road so I got a deeper understanding and how enslaved people constructed the river and how our levee systems depend upon this history of enslaved people and then eventually we also went to Cancer Alley and the direct correlation of this community of people who 
who are living adjacent to the to the river and who are still facing the repercussions that the the problems that white people brought to this whole story Tanyelle Marikensi could you maybe talk more deeply about our visit to Cancer Alley yes yes um that that's definitely when I interviewed Eve and she's a cancer survivor and lives um in in Freetown and you know she's Freetown is this um the town that uh, it, it, it's near a plantation, so it's like along Cancer Alley, and um, she's been living there, her family for generations uh, after slavery, and um, them only been able to afford that plot of land, and that's all that they've um, ever had. It's a predominantly black, um, uh, black town population, and it's just seeing that, like, taking from what I heard and learned from Annabelle and her experience at Whitney Plantation and then just seeing how that it's just um, what we're seeing now with the petrochemical industry kind of replacing in a way kind of uh, replacing the same role that plantations have had. Can you guys kind of speak to how you guys were thinking about these issues before having this experience and then what started going through your mind as you all started talking to each other? Before connecting with uh, Annabelle and Tenyama, we were kind of brought up that it is, you know, things are the way they are, and you really don't ask questions. That never really, you know, sat well with me. And so one day in class, it was eighth grade year, and my teacher was a, she, she was a social studies teacher. And she told, she told the whole class, she said, um, erosion is such a big, big thing. And one day, all of Louisiana is going to be underwater. And just, you know, randomly filming one day, I, I, I said that. And from there, and I was like, so now what does that mean for people, you know, you know that, like, that are still living here? Because so many people call the bottom of the boot Louisiana home, you know, down in Homa, down Dulac, down Pornishan, just we all, like, this is our home. So that really raised questions to me as, as in, like, what is going to happen for us through here? Like, what can we do? to prevent our forever homes from being gone forever. And I'm just so curious because at different points of the film, it really seems like it stressed just how important it is to understand how we got to this point. Why is understanding the state's history, understanding how the land was built, what slavery has to do with it, why is it important to understand all of this? I think that once I understood a deeper history of everything, I kind of could see where we all currently fit into the picture now and how, even though we all live in separate places, understanding that we are connected through the river makes me feel this kind of sense of community and humanity within even even the faults of our history. And I think approaching everything with a sense of, sense of compassion and a sense of, yes, mistakes were made in our history and understanding that history but being able to say we have an issue at hand and we understand the issue and I can communicate with these people in these my in my community and we can find a solution or we can spread the information that we have now. And what are you all hoping the audience takes away from Hollow Tree? Um, I'm kind of hoping that it'll get more people to get out there and not just 
watch things fly by them. Like if, 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 there's a, if there's a chance for us to get out there and make changes and keep each other together as a community, as a whole, you know, just making sure that, that we're fighting against the change that will not change us. You know, like I understand that a lot of change is happening, but if we can stop it from, from coming in between us, you know, and, and affecting our livelihood, then we should get out there and fight for it. Yeah, and, and I think also uh, in addition to everything that Kenzie's been saying is that like community is really important. So I think that everyone approaches the climate crisis and they're like, oh, it's too much, there's too many things all happening at once, it's too, it's too big, we're never gonna solve it, you might as well just give up, accept it for how it is and just keep your head buried in the sand. And I think that community is really important because you, realizing um, that we have a voice is like the first step, but then realizing that we're in it together is the most, I think is the most important thing. I think that, I hope like when people watch it, they're, they, they can think about how, you know, solving it is not a one person um, task. And it's also not like a push it to somebody else to figure out or a certain group to figure out task either that it really does involve like everyone being able to come together. I think something that I want people to walk away with or maybe not walk away with is a sense of fear, but more so invigoration for for change because that's how I felt after experiencing um, not only watching the film, but everything that we we did and everything we learned. That was Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker discussing the new documentary, Holotry. And you're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Patrick Madden. Before Roe versus Wade was overturned earlier this year, organizers and lawmakers raised concerns about what abortion restrictions would mean for states where maternal outcomes were already bad. The Gulf States newsroom's Maya Miller digs into a new report on the reality of reproductive care in abortion-restrictive states. The report, published by the Commonwealth Fund, examines data from 2018 to 2020 in all 50 states. It shows that the maternal mortality rate is increasing twice as fast in the 26 states that have abortion restrictions or total bans. Black women and other mothers of color are more likely to die And there are a few reasons for that. One is location. Southern states like Alabama and Mississippi have larger populations of black residents who live in rural areas. And many of those counties qualify as maternity deserts, which means there are few, if any, health care providers for mothers and their infants. Another is insurance coverage. Many of those who live in rural areas are underinsured or covered by Medicaid. Most of the states that have refused to expand Medicaid also restrict abortions. The report notes that expanding Medicaid coverage, not just for postpartum care, could improve health outcomes across all age groups. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Maya Miller. And that's going to wrap up Louisiana Considered here on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Patrick Madden. 
Today's episode of Louisiana Considered uh, was produced by Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers, Garrett Pittman and Aubrey Purcell. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. And Louisiana Considered wants to hear from you. Please fill out our pitch line to let us know what kinds of story ideas you have for the show. And while you're at it, fill out our listener survey. We want to keep bringing you the kinds of conversations you would like to listen to. Thank you. I'm Patrick Madden, and everyone have a wonderful and safe holidays. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience. More at rouse's.com with additional support from the Sazerac House.